We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. As kind and genuine as he is knowledgeable and gifted, I am so thrilled to welcome my good friend, author S.A. Cosby, back to the podcast this week, a man I am honored to call Sean. In fact, the first time I chatted with him was, I believe, one week before he released the book that would become a smash success and put him on the map. This, of course, was Blacktop Wasteland, which won an avalanche of well-deserved praise and awards, including the Anthony and the International Thriller Writers Award for Best Hardcover Fiction Novel. Impressively, his follow-up title, Razorblade Tears, met and or exceeded all expectations, becoming a runaway New York Times bestseller, earning Sean another boatload of accolades, including repeat honors from organizations which celebrated Blacktop Wasteland the previous year. Yet perhaps the most staggeringly awesome achievement for Razorblade Tears was being one of the titles included on former President Obama's list of summer reads. Still as gracious as ever and well-loved among his colleagues, Sean, we're all so very proud of and excited for you. Welcome back. How are you doing? And how has this year been for you? Well, thank you for having me back. Um, of course. It has been an honor to be on the show with you. I've said this in, in social media posts and to you personally, but um, uh, as a person who loves film, who considers themselves a cinephile, it is both an honor and a daunting task to speak with someone um, like yourself, who is a film scholar. And for the people Aww. listening at home, there is a difference and a wide gulf between a cinephile and somebody who likes movies and someone who intrinsically understands and is able to critique the art form. And so that's that's Aww. a wide uh, margin <laughs> no. of difference. But I am very <laughs> I am very grateful and honored that you allow me to uh, to pontificate my various and somewhat controversial sometimes film opinion. So thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me back. 
Thank you. Are you kidding? I learn so much every time we talk because you are a master storyteller. And so you understand and bring your level of expertise to everything. So I think you're selling yourself short. Uh, you listeners love when you're on for good reason. And I, of course, always find it such a joy to talk to you about movies and life and books. So thank you for coming back. I do have a couple of questions for you that I know your readers are dying to ask. The first is, what's going on with those potential screen adaptations of your books, including My Darkest Prayer? Are there any uh, pieces of news that you're allowed to tell us or on the record, <laughs> like off the record, you and I'll talk later, but on the record. Yeah. <laughs> on the record, they're both moving forward. I think at different pace at a different pace. Um, Blacktop is got a really good script and uh, there is a possible director attached. Um, they are now looking at maybe doing it as a limited run prestige series. As opposed cool. to a, uh, a film, and it may be budgetary constraints. Uh, anybody who's read sure. the book knows that there are quite a few uh, like high <laughs> intense car chases yeah. in there, and uh, I think they may be looking at using a, uh, the app, the platform of streaming, to get the budget to bring those car chases to life. I mean, I wrote the book, but I, I am looking forward to seeing those those chases and those action scenes on screen. Uh, yes. to see how closely they mirror what was in my mind, um, which is just an incredible position to be in as a creative person, as a writer. Um, uh, with Razorblade, it seems like that uh, that ball is rolling real fast and real steady. It's like the uh, the boulder yes. that chased Indiana Jones. Uh, it's full <laughs> steam ahead. They are they are that that is pro- being produced by Paramount Players in association with Jerry Bruckheimer Productions. So, you know, that's uh, that's Hollywood royalty right there. So they're pushing hard. Uh, I don't have any firm dates yet as to what and, and when they're going to start principal photography or anything like that. Um, I do hope that when they do, they'll let me know because I want to visit the set. I don't want to be the intruding writer guy. You know, I just kind of it'd be cool to just see it. I want to like I, I've driven a duster before my dad had one. So that's oh, cool. where the inspiration came from. But I would love to see the duster capital T H E on screen and see it on set and seeing whoever plays bug behind the wheel. That I think would be an incredibly moving and surreal moment um, for me. I might cry. I might cry a little bit, Oh yeah, but it'll be, a, it'll be like a manly tough tear. It'll be like, it'll be like a uh, Johnny Depp and cry baby. It'll just be one. Slowly <laughs> moving down my cheek. <laughs> so that's what's going on with that right now. Uh, Darkest Prayer is in uh, talks to be a, a TV series as well, um, but with eye toward maybe as a continuing series, not just a, a um, not just a prestige sort of like eight episode event like they're looking at with Blacktop. Um, just because oh, cool. I think the characters um, lend themselves to more episodic and seasonal television and say bug story i think it's one long epic that can be wrapped up in a season whereas the characters in my darkest prayer uh nathan waymaker and his sidekick skunk could go on to do different cases on different seasons so uh i just signed the paperwork for that got that back so that's good um other than that that's about it I, i i've just uh uh i know this might be your next question but i'll jump ahead so i just finished the final edits for All the Sinners Bleed, which is my Southern Gothic murder mystery, heavily influenced by True Detective and also 
by uh, Red Dragon and uh, my Darkness Take My Hand. Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, I should say, and Darkness Take My Hand by uh, Dennis Lehane. Um, so it was a lot of different influences, but hopefully I was able to put my own particular uh, Southern noir twist on it. Oh, um, I'm sure. And for those listening, All the Sinners Bleed is... Um, so All the Sinners Bleed is the story of Titus Crown, the first black sheriff of Charon County, Virginia. And uh, the one year anniversary of his election, there's a shooting at the local high school when a beloved school teacher is murdered. And then oh. the uh, teacher has been murdered by a former student. And then unfortunately, the former student is shot by the police. And so as he investigates the crime, Titus discovers that the teacher, the former student and the third mystery person were a trio of serial killers. And so he's trying to find oh, wow. out who the third killer is while at the same time dealing with social and racial tensions in his small town so uh like i said owes a great debt to the first season of true detective but also uh i think owes a great debt to um red dragon and and darkness take my hand those are both books i read way before i should have been reading them but they influenced me <laughs> a great deal and i still return to uh i read darkness take my hand every october for halloween because it's a detective novel but it's a horror novel it's, it's so um uh so that's what's going on with that and then there's a couple of things I still can't talk about yet. Oh, but I can oh, no. talk about. I know. Um, I do have an eight episode audio drama coming from Audible called Broke Down Profits, produced by SBH Productions, which is Kevin Hart's production company, which SBH stands for Short, Black, and Handsome, which I think is hilarious. I love um, that. And, and so the, uh, yeah, the, ep- the episodic drama is an eight episode drama about three down on their luck grifters who fall afoul of the russian mob in new york and so to escape um they try to make their way down south to south carolina to hide out until things cool off but um unbeknownst to them they're being followed by uh a uh a russian assassin who has a a love for american hip-hop um so it's (laughs) it's got uh (laughs) it's got humor but there's also some very, very serious moments and uh i just recently heard the table read for the script and it was again one of those incredibly surreal moments where it makes you realize how powerful your words are when they come to life when somebody performs them yeah Um, also gave me confidence to maybe one day tackle a screenplay of my own but we'll see how that goes (laughs) oh i'm sure you will kill it you're You're great at everything you seem to set your mind out to to do. So I can't wait. Let's let's give it up for Sean writing a script. I mean, we need one. Come on. Yes, that's wonderful. And congratulations, of course, on being in the new BAMS. This is very exciting because last year in the best American mystery and suspense story is our good friend, actually Sean's best friend, Nikki Dolson. Her story was in there Mm -hmm. along with the stories of many of his friends. Again, this year, a lot of friends and Sean is in the book. So congrats. Tell us about that. Oh man, it's so cool. So anybody doesn't know BAMS is best American mystery short stories. It's a yearly anthology um, where they collect the best mystery short stories from around America. And it's one of the things I started reading that, I'm dating myself. I started reading that back in 97. Um, I, did I originally read time. the best. Of- yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I read the original version I read was the their sister anthology, Best American Short Stories, which is a yes. non-genre, more mm-hmm. literary bit. But it was that year, it was edited by Tobias Wolf, 
who, who, if anybody doesn't know, is a oh, master boy. American yeah. writer, a master of the short story form. And so a couple of the stories in that book were crime tinged. They had a sort of crime background, even though they were literary. And I remember reading those stories and I was like, man, it must, even as a kid, I thought it must be a big deal to be in this book because yeah. there's so many stories published around the country. So when your story is picked, it's a huge deal. And so that was one of my writing goals for a long, long time oh, was to get incredible. into a band. Yeah. So I got an honorable mention in 2016 Very with cool. a short story called Slant Six. And so then um, to be in this year's edition is just, it's one of those dreams come true. I think oh. for anybody, especially uh, writers who didn't go the MFA route, you know, mm-hmm. uh, BAMs is sort of one of those things that give you it gives you hope because when you read the biographies of all the people that are in there, there's such a multiplicity of backgrounds. There's yeah. people that have MFAs, there are people that are professors, there are people who are non-professional writers who may be their first story. There are people yeah. who have been writers that you've admired. You know, it will always blow my mind that I am in the same anthology as one of my good, good friends, uh James D.F. Hanna, uh, which is a pseudonym for a friend of mine named Chad Williamson. Mm-hmm. And also that he and I are in the same edition with Dennis Lehane. And it's just, it is such an honor yeah. and an incredible thrill to see your name alongside somebody who, for me, is one of my writing heroes. You know, he's up there with Walter Mosley and, and Elmore Leonard. If you want to talk about my Mount Rushmore of American crime yes. writers, uh, you know, and for, you know, it's it's one of those things. And I was very lucky to meet him earlier this year at the Anthony Awards at uh, at the Bouchercon at Bouchercon yeah. and he is such a nice man and he was so ingratiating had quite a night and with he him. did an interview yeah. with me and it, oh, it was fun yeah we we had a few drinks um <laughs> he's a friendly friendly person and he's awesome. he's uh, a very charismatic guy and he's yeah. just super open to talking to writers and talking about writing and you know you would think somebody's had the enormous success both in film and movies and tv that he's had you would think he'd be a little standoffish but no not oh, at all and he picked nice up the check. Hear. No. and he picked up the check oh that's so cool yeah 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 that's wonderful well today i was talking to nikki our good friend and asking if she had any questions for you so, um, you know, we do try to make you blush a little bit. So I have a couple of those. No, but um, first she was letting me know that Apple just chose Razorblade Tears as the audiobook of the week, I believe. And also, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you also just made the crime fiction lovers shortlist for best author of the year i joked last time that's how i made him blush a little like you know he wins a different award every five minutes and this was before (laughs) the razor blade tears you know phenomenon of this year where it was like literally he was you know needing to check bags at the airport full of awards essentially which (laughs) is like incredible but um so now Nikki said I'm gonna have to change that from wins an award every five minutes to every three minutes. <laughs> that sounds like something Nikki would say. Um, no, it's <laughs> funny. But I went, like I went to England early this year. It's my first time going to England. It was an incredible adventure. It was an yeah. incredible moment to to step step foot in the in in the UK. And I was over there. I was nominated for an award, and I didn't think I was gonna win because. 
for all the success I've had in the United States, I've been nominated for a bunch of stuff in England, haven't won nothing. But the nomination's <laughs> cool, you know, to be yeah. nominated for the Golden Dagger and the Silver Dagger and so on and so forth. So I'm over there, I'm sitting in the back, and there's these two young ladies sitting next to me, and they uh, couldn't have been older. They might have been 25, 30. Young young ladies, night on the town. Uh, there was a free bar, so they were feeling pretty good. <laughs> and so they were talking about the different books that are nominated for awards. At it was the London uh, first annual London Book Festival and uh, Capital Crimes, excuse me. And anyway, um, when they not when they when they spoke about Raised by Tears as one of the nominees, I overheard them talking about me, but I realized they didn't know it was me sitting next to them. So oh, I was wow. like listening to see what they were going to say. And they were like, oh, you know, they were like, his books are so good. And like, but one of them was like, I don't know. He seemed like he looks like a big scary dude. And the other one was like, no, no, I've heard he's a teddy bear. I heard he's really nice. And, so, <laughs> and I was like, oh, do you guys, do you guys like S.A. Cosby? And I was like, oh yeah, we've read Blacktop Wasteland. And we're waiting for his, his earlier book to be released here in, in the UK. And I was like, and um, one of them couldn't think of the name. I was like, my darkest prayer. And they were like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, wow, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure if he was here, he would say thank you, you know, and that he appreciates your support. And then one of them was like, if he was here, and I can't do an English accent, so I'm not going to try. But it was so, so funny because she's like, if he was here, I'd have to give him a big hug. I'd jump in his lap. And it was so funny. <laughs> so they announced that I won the award. They announced that I won the Capital Crime uh, Thriller of the Year. I was I good. I got up. And I turned to the ladies because they were sitting on the end of the aisle. I was like, excuse me, that's that's me. And they lost their minds. It was so oh, funny. That's oh, my so God. Funny. Hilarious. <laughs> we ended up taking pictures together and, and everything. They were like, you're not wearing your glasses. And I'm like, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Anyway. It's been wow. a so you're kind of a rock a star. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's just because in the UK, they they still see writers on that level you know it's That's like so we went to places that were not associated with the festival and people recognized me you know like united oh. states if i'm not at a if i'm not at a writing convention type thing nobody knows who i am which is fine i'm okay mm-hmm. with that yeah. i actually prefer the anonymity a yeah. little bit <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny yeah another question speaking of big scary dude you know um our good friend sean is uh quite the the gym guy he likes going to the gym and so he's taken some some you know beefcake shots and so nikki wanted me to ask if you were going to put out a calendar and call it like muscles of crime fiction you're going to do that (laughs) no i'm not going to put out a gym gym calendar because i've I've slacked off the gym a little bit since okay so i'm gonna but i thought about it'd be cool to put out like just a very self-aggrandizing, uh, <laughs> egotistical uh, set of calendar photos of, you know, genius at work. But it would just be me, like, sitting outside, staring off in the distance, or playing with my cat, or, like, <laughs> or, or me standing, a picture of me staring at my computer and, like, with tears running down my face because I can't think of nothing. So I don't think I'm going to put out the gym calendar, but beware of the, uh, the esoteric, uh ads of of march calendar where it's just me looking serious like rodan's thinker or something so okay well you know like we're gonna need a pre-order link for when i put this up everyone is gonna want that calendar (laughs) (laughs) oh man (laughs) 
Well, I don't want to completely monopolize you, my friends. So we should probably just get into our topic du jour. We're here to discuss mm-hmm. the career themes, films, and style of the Cairo-born Armenian, Egyptian, Canadian filmmaker. One of the most singular, daring, and iconoclastic bright lights to emerge from the late 1980s loosely affiliated group of colleagues dubbed the Toronto New Wave. Fascinated by stories of tragedy, regret, alienation, isolation in modern society, and our struggles to connect, while we plan to look at two of his career high watermarks of the 1990s, as well as his biggest box office hit in 2009 with Exotica, The Sweet Hereafter, and Chloe, respectively. Before we do that, I'd love to hear from you, Sean, on what you think makes Agoyan's work stand out to you as a cinephile. Well, it's funny because I watched all three of these movies that we're going to discuss recently, like over the past yeah. few days. And I took I actually took notes this time. A lot of times anybody listens to a previous episode, I just ramble. <laughs> hey, you like, can do nope, that. That works. Be professional. <laughs> I'm gonna take notes and have and and I have this note here. That Agoyan, Agoyan, and I'm I know I'm from, I'm butchering this, the man's name, but Agoyan, he's fascinated yeah. with Agoyan, thank you. He's fascinated with grief and how grief affects us, and then in turn, how that affects the people in our circuit. Yes. And whether it's Exotica, whether it's uh Chloe, whether it's you know uh The Sweet Hereafter or any of his other films, there is this dark incredibly inquisitive sensibility when it comes to grief, when it comes to tragedy, um, when it comes to how we navigate those um, torturous rivers, you know, because um, grief is not something you get over. It's something you get through. I firmly believe that. And yes. I don't think that there's a filmmaker working today who really is as interested or fascinated with that idea um, in the way that going is maybe Bon um but in a different way, from a different perspective, grief combined with capitalism, combined with poverty and so on and so forth. But with a going, uh, it's it's basically just the philosophical idea of grief and yes. how do we deal with it. And so that, for me, is what makes him incredibly unique. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's a really excellent point you were making about grief is something you just get through and not get over. Um, recently, we were talking to a good friend of ours, Sean, and I are part of this group chat of like movie geeks, uh, you know, film writers and crime writers. And we just we're kind of a big um, group that talks all the time because we're a bunch of chatterboxes. Recently, one of our good buddies was celebrating the birthday of a friend that he lost a year ago and talking about how, you know, she used to have these huge blowouts. And then this year, unfortunately, only like eight people showed up to remember her. And we were saying, but, but you remembered is a good point that Sean made and um, kind of like how we still think of and celebrate and honor these people in our lives. Like you never forget them. You don't get over something. It becomes a part of you. It defines you. And I think that is something we see in Exotica and the sweet hereafter and actually several of his movies even the adjuster 
um, which mm-hmm. came out before um, Exotica, another great one with Elias Kateas uh, playing, you mm-hmm. know, another kinky, weird <laughs> role um, <laughs> as an insurance adjuster, insurance man who comes to you after you've like lost your house or a tragedy and tells you you've been in a state of shock or you are and he will do anything to soothe you and even seduce you. I mean, which is, you know, it's Elias Kateas in the <laughs> early 90s. That's pretty charitable and nice <laughs> of him. Yes. And so, you know, Goyan is just fascinated by these things. And I think he he does a good job of making it authentic, even when they're this weird, which is mm-hmm. a fine line to walk. Yeah. Yeah. I think, like, for it, it, he he reminds me of Neil Laboot in a way, and the way that ah, Neil Laboot is very fascinated with the deconstruction of toxic masculinity, yep. whether it's in the company of men, your friends and neighbors. Um, it's this idea of that Laboot is is overwhelmed with curiosity about what makes men men within this patriarchal society that we yep. live in, and yeah. what is masculinity in the same way that they're going is what is grief what is how is grief manifested um in our lives and you know is there a right or wrong way to grieve i don't think he's asking that question specifically no but it's but he does analyze the different yeah the different ways that people grieve i mean if you go to like so i'll tell a quick story so when azotica first came out i think it was like in 90 something like 95 94 94, yeah um yeah 94 I remember seeing the commercials on TV and I, as a young man of a certain temperament and age was like, Oh wow, this is going to be hot. This is going to be great. I can't wait. This is like fancy strip club. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny. That is a great, that that is a great uh, uh, segue into a very small side topic. The marketing of movies. Yes. marketing of movies is an art form and everybody's an artist at it because i know there were people who went to see exotica expecting you know uh wow things or expecting basic in- instinct and instead you get this incredibly complex and artistic you know dissemination and examination of grief and tragedy because i think those are two different things mm-hmm. you know and you know, Bruce Greenwood, to give somebody the plot of Exotica real quick. Um, basically, Exotica takes place in this very upscale, very fancy strip club. I made a note that this strip club has the nicest furniture I've ever seen in a strip club. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, been to one or two. Um, and so Bruce Greenwood plays this uh, tax adjuster for the Canadian diversion of the IRS. And he goes to the strip club once a week. He sees this young girl dance. She's wearing the, you know, now cliche um, Catholic schoolgirl outfit. Uh, Elias Cateus is the DJ. Side note, seeing Elias Cateus with hair is weird. He looks weird with <laughs> hair. Like, I'm so used to being balding. Also, no matter how old he is in a movie, he always looks 45. Like, it's like, he's just, that's, that's his frozen age. He's like a character in a book. He's 45. He could be 25 in Exotica. He could be 50 in uh you know in uh, uh the the second conjuring it don't matter he's always looks 45 but um <laughs> so Bruce Greenwood's character goes to see this young lady dance uh Elias Cateus character is the DJ but he's also in love with this young lady as well and mm-hmm. as the story unfolds we find these layers upon layers of connections and double connections and it is 
not an erotic thriller at all. It is a very dark and very deep, um, like I said, discussion, essay on the nature of tragedy and grief. And what Bruce Greenwood's character has gone through is just, for spoiler alert, I guess, it's been out 30 years, but um, he's lost several people very close to him, the closest. Mm -hmm. And so this sort of weird connection he has with this dancer, which you don't realize about what it is until later in the movie. Um, and again, I'm going to say spoiler alert for anybody listening, but I can't talk about the movie without giving some of it away. Um, so this young girl is dancing, used to be the babysitter uh, for Bruce mm -hmm. Greenwood and his wife. And um, unfortunately, they've lost their daughter as the movie when the movie opens and we see it in flashbacks. We also find out that his wife was cheating on him with his brother. Mm -hmm. And then they had a car accident and she died and the brother's paralyzed. And it's like, I remember watching it recently the other night. And I was just like, how was Bruce Greenwood's character upright? Like how was yes. he walking? He took so you know, many just, hits. Yes. Yeah. It's how we yeah. all deal with this essentially, because you also, you, you basically covered everything that I put in uh, my introduction for the film. So we could skip right over that. I was just going to say it won the Fapresky prize at the Cannes film festival, which is the international film critics award there. It won eight Canadian Oscars or genie awards, including best motion picture. It's kind of the film that put him on the map as a world-class filmmaker and it was also one that Martin Scorsese chose as one of the 10 best films of the decade when he was sitting alongside Roger Ebert for that special episode that they did. Um, it is one that does, like a lot of his movies, move back and forth in dual timelines. And other eccentrics fill the ensemble, including the owner of an exotic pet store, illegally importing rare birds who's brought to life by Thomas Pinto and um, multiple other characters, birds and exotic animals, especially birds kind of play a part of the whole film. We see them throughout the club. Of course, the club is called Exotica and also the brother has a bird. Um, this all goes on. It's a powerful, strangely moving picture that shouldn't work as well as it does, but I believe it's a masterpiece and perhaps it is my favorite at Goyan, actually. So um, you brought up the eroticism and I do remember even like the Siskel and Ebert episode, they, they said, you know, it should be titillating or it looks like it and all the clips that they were showing us on the broadcast looked very sexy, but it's something Agoyan actually said in an interview that was really good is he said he's fascinated by things that should be sexy but he's not allowing you to feel that because there's all this other stuff going on at the same time so you're seeing these images that should turn you on but at the same time you're like boy why is he talking about loss and not being there to protect her and also this Catholic schoolgirl outfit that she wears. You find out in one of the last scenes of the movie that was actually his daughter's um, school uniform. Mm -hmm. There's a really interesting character played by Sarah Polly as his niece, mm -hmm. who he basically hires to come over and fake babysit uh, to mm -hmm. play the piano at the house, just kind of give him the illusion that uh, the daughter is still there. Actually, that was his gateway into making this movie I read. <laughs> Agoyan, or it's on the, the Criterion disc too. He's talking about 
how men tell babysitters things on the drive home. And so originally it was going to be about like this girl in the neighborhood that men were just driving from babysitting jobs or whatever, and um, just kind of opening up and going through things. And they're almost like treating her like a therapist because she's so Mm -hmm. able to cut through the bullshit and not be cynical and just tell you what she thinks. And, um, and then of course he was, fascinated by strip clubs and he just started to plug all these things together which is really weird and it shouldn't work but i just love this film yeah yeah i um i mean i know i was watching it that it feels like he's treating grief as an addiction you know that's a good point yeah and 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 everybody in the movie is addicted to their particular grief well, yeah. Bruce Greenwood's character is addicted to the grief of not only losing his daughter mm-hmm. and not only losing his wife, but also having lost her before she died because he yeah. lost her to his brother. Yeah. Uh, and that devastation and that yeah. guilt. And, you know, the scenes with his brother have an extra sense of gravitas because there's a secret that lives between them. And, and this idea that, well, you know, he's my brother. I still have to interact with him which i don't agree with by the way but i'm fascinated to see it on screen but i I think that we give blood relatives too much power in our lives i mean there are some things that are unforgivable there are some things that you should be able to say i don't want anything to happen to you but i don't want to be around you anymore um but i thought he treated grief you know bruce greenwood's character is addicted to his uh grief and the way he processes it is to have this young girl dance for him wearing his daughter's mm-hmm. outfit. And it's sort of this weird self-flagellation that's going on with his character where he's punishing himself. He's aroused by this young girl. He's aroused by her dance, by the connotation and the context, but he won't allow himself to feel free. He won't allow himself to move past that. And then mm-hmm. the last, Elias uh, uh, Cotea's character, he's addicted to this young girl and her grief. And we find out later that he and the young woman were a part of a search party that found the body that found Green's Green's was dog. And so when you find that, when you realize that you realize that they're damaged, that they're uh, messed up, you know, and that has affected them. You know, I have a, we have a mutual friend who was sharing about having, you know, ran across a dead body in the course of that day and how that affected them and how that, uh, you know, hung around their, you know, their, their mind for a while. And I mean, I think mm-hmm. with Exotica, he does this great job of showing just how terrible this murder was to all these people involved. And then on top of that, you know, pushing Bruce Greenwood's character even further into sort of a, a spiraling psychosis. You know, uh, I'm interested in your position. I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts on the birds. I thought the birds sort of we're trying. I thought maybe he was going for a metaphorical thing with the birds because a lot of times with exotic birds, their wings are clipped, you know, so they're pretty to look at, but they're not true birds anymore because they can't fly. Mm-hmm. Or it's somehow in that idea that they're beautiful, but they're caged and they can't escape. And I was, I was wondering, was he doing that in essence, talking about Bruce Greenwood, but also talking about Mia Kirshner's character? You know, she's forever frozen in this moment of finding this body. Like her life is divided between the moment before she found the body and the moment after. And the fact that both her and Elias Cotea's characters end up at the strip club, it says something about them being trapped in that moment, the same way those birds are trapped in those cages. 
I agree with you. And I even would take it a step further because there's uh, the Thomas Pinto character who's smuggling in uh, birds in egg form. And there's this thing where he um, has this ritual that has to deal with sex and denying himself at the same time uh, that he does. And he winds up going home with this man who was man working the airport security um, checkpoint who was suspicious of him, but like let him go. And then while he's in the apartment, he realizes these are um, the birds or what he's been doing. And he takes them without asking. And so there's something about what, who belongs to whom and what we do with these Mm -hmm. things. And also um, a beautiful thing, uh, being taken from one location and put into another uh, box mm-hmm. or a prison or that kind of situation. And so there is this question of like, he wakes up and they're gone, sort of like with what happened with Bruce Greenwood with um, mm-hmm. losing these people or, um, you know, one day you're here and the next minute you're not. At the end of the movie, too, there's this really eerie, ominous scene where we realize something is going on in the house or with the family or in the life of Mia Kirshner's character um, Mm -hmm. because she is kind of awkward and she's the babysitter. And you can tell she wants to maybe open up to the Bruce Greenwood character about Mm -hmm. stuff that's going on at home, but she doesn't know how. And um, so it kind of has that sort of thing of, what is going on in these boxes or these other places Mm -hmm. and um, which life and which place do you belong? And so I thought that Mm -hmm. fed into exactly what you were saying with the birds. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was curious, like I said, your thoughts on it, because that's what I, and I thought it's a really good way of putting it too, that we're seeing these people, you know, these beautiful things, but they're gilded, you know, they're in gilded cages and they're, they're not able to really be, what they're supposed to be in full. Yeah. And I think, I wonder if he's making a comment about grief, a, a, a type of grief that I think freezes us, you know, like if you have a, a loved one who's elderly, who's had a good life and they pass, there's almost like there's sadness. Yeah. It's almost like, well, they lived a good life. They a long yeah. run. And then when somebody younger or someone that you're close to passes and there is this moment where you feel like I'll never get past this. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- like I said, there's a line of demarcation before I knew this news and now after I know this news. And mm-hmm. and and for some people that dissipates over time. You're able to move fast. It. Um, for some people it doesn't, you know. Um, and so I wonder if that's something he's trying to say. Um, I've been accused of trying to think too deep about things, so maybe it's not that deep. Maybe he just oh, likes no, pretty I birds. Think it is. But um, <laughs> yeah, and it plays <laughs> with. In the way that he sort of processes things as a storyteller with his um, experience, experimentations in time and how time is fluid. Uh, I think another point that he made in an interview talking about Sweet Hereafter, which we're going to get into in a moment, is that um, grief is something like you want to assign blame and you want somebody to take blame from you, but you have to kind of look within yourself and uh, decide how you're going to process that or find it within yourself. And these characters in Exotica are having trouble with that. And also the way that uh, time sort of flows 
like before and after what you were saying, Sean, which was a really brilliant point, I think. That's sort of something that goes throughout all of Egoyan's films with uh, his narrative and his nonlinear storytelling. It isn't just a stylistic thing. Uh, he said that's just how his brain works. So he writes mm -hmm. like that. And then at, as he's shooting, he might not even know how he's going to assemble it in the editing room until later. Um, he said, just like when you make a decision, if somebody let's say, ask you to marry them, um, you might say yes, instinctively, or you might take a moment. But your response to them, you think is direct. But how you arrived at that, yes or no, um, goes through all these different avenues and thought processes in your your head. And that's kind of what he's saying is we don't know how our minds work, or how we um, go through things or evaluate or make decisions. And uh, as he said, you know, the people in Exotica, like, when Bruce Greenwood would have walked into the strip club and saw her in the outfit, he could have gone home, you know, screaming and running. But he decided to stay. And also in her uh, regard, why is she wearing that outfit? Like, what made her choose that and why is Katea standing there and like facilitating this or going through it himself like you know you don't necessarily know how you're thinking about things which mm -hmm. I love I have a just a few notes the, yeah. and these are scattered out of notes the way my of mind course. is working I, I thought oh, no. the strip club is disturbingly the strip club is disturbingly sanitized it looks like <laughs> a restaurant it's like, it's it's like an opera house where you know Leonard Cohen is on tap for a school girl, uh dance routine. Um, <laughs> I also I also thought that the relationship between uh Elias Coteus and the owner of the strip club, which is I think uh Adam Magoyan's wife, is it is her, yes, that is a very quietly toxic relationship. Because if you watch the movie, she basically has paid him or compensated him for getting her pregnant. There's this whole like there's a whole like section that we didn't get into. Oh my god, I that. know. And mm -hmm. and I think I and again I'm just postulating, but I think Elias Cote's character, I think his motivation or or his desire, he couldn't be with Mia Kirshner's character the way he wanted. Yep. Like I yep. we get that they were together at one time and they're not anymore. Mm -hmm. Um and I think he couldn't be with her the way he wanted. So he went ahead and did this again. I, I think he thought it was going to hurt her. It didn't really. Yeah. Uh, it did and it didn't. But everybody, I, I said this, everybody in this movie would be terrible to have a drink with. Not that they're bad people, <laughs> but they are just all so broken in a way that doesn't give you any indication that they're healing. They're all also codependent. So that's oh, they fun. are, yeah, uh, so, yeah, and yeah, they're, they're self-sabotagers too, because I think that did actually mm -hmm. expedite the ending of their relationship. Like maybe they were having trouble, yeah. or they couldn't, you know, mm -hmm. their their relationship kind of began at the point of a tragedy, and they just, right. you know, it probably wasn't the healthiest that way. And then, um, but yeah, Agoyan's wife is remarkable. Let me. Um, get her name just to make sure that I am saying it. I, I do apologize if I'm saying it incorrectly, but I believe it is Arsene Kanjian. believe. Uh, mm -hmm. She is a great actress. She's in, I think, all of the Egoyan films are close to it. Mm -hmm. um, at is 
she might have a tiny role or a bigger one. He sort of expressed regret. Like I probably shouldn't have had my wife who actually was pregnant at the time, like in this movie (laughs) surrounded by these women, you know, with um, objectively perfect, you know, naked bodies, essentially Mm -hmm. like being surrounded by it when she herself was feeling a little insecure and worrying what she was going to look like after uh, she gave birth to their son. Um, But I think she's very strong. She kind of has this sort of like, um, you know, you were talking about self-flagellation. She has almost like this Virgin Mary thing happening a little bit, like the way that she is presented Mm -hmm. to us. Um, So there are some sort of iconographic uh, things going on Mm -hmm. in, in that. And yeah, it's a really interesting film. Yeah, but don't have a drink yeah. with these people for sure. No, they're no, no. they're they're all depressing and terrible. Yeah. Um, last <laughs> thing I'll say about uh, Exotica before we move on, Exotica makes me think of there's a book and a movie uh, by John Irving called The Hotel New Hampshire, and it's about this very unconventional family, and they're extremely and I cannot preface this enough extremely unconventional family life oh wow so just know if you go to read the book or you go to watch the movie it is they are an extremely unconventional (laughs) family (laughs) you know that's a film i haven't seen yet and i want to (laughs) but yeah but it is john irving you never know what you're gonna get yes it's not a great film the hotel new hampshire is a much better book uh-huh. Um, and his stuff is hit or miss with film. It is. Uh, you know, the world according to Garp is so-so, but then the side of the house rules is a classic, in my opinion. So I think that but is a great the point I'm gonna make. Yeah. The point I wanted to make though is that the whole new hotel New Hampshire plays with the idea of dysfunctionality. Like mm-hmm. what is dysfunctional to you is perfectly fine to me. What's you know, what's uh you know, what's torture. Uh, was home to the spider is torture to the fly, you yep. know, and so it plays with that idea heavily in a much more literary, uh, less I don't say less depressing because there's depressing parts of that of that book, but it's way more humorous, obviously. But if you look at Exotica, this last thing I'll say about it, they are this the characters: Elias Coteus, Bruce Greenwood, Mia Kirshner, uh, uh, Adam McGowan's wife. Even mm-hmm. the even the the the, the bird uh the pet shop owner mm-hmm. they are this weird sort of dysfunctional family unit in yes. a way mm-hmm. they're all codependent they all depend on each other they're all a part of each other's lives in the least healthy way as possible and i think that's interesting especially um whether you're canadian or american but the idea of the family unit and what works for certain people what might not work for you works for someone else. I think that's, you know, again, that movie is just a fascinating movie. Um, but yeah, don't go to it expecting to be titillated. That is not going to happen. So. No, no, it's about role playing and about, yeah, tragedy and moving on and and uh, the weird transactional nature of sex. And also is, is grief a commodity? Yeah, there's a lot of good questions being asked in that movie. It's one you should watch with someone or watch separately because it is such a you know unique experience. You might want to be alone. And then after talk it over with someone, I think would be great. But mm-hmm. next up, we have the suite hereafter from 1997, which is perhaps the film most synonymous with Egoyan, one that means a whole lot to Sean. So I'm going to let him introduce it. Take it away, my friend. 
basically, I just want to say the sweet hereafter is an incredible masterpiece of character of, uh, again, taking themes that are going, um, has been fascinated with throughout his career of mm-hmm. grief and how it changes us and how it changes the way we connect with people, uh, starring Ian Holm and again, Bruce Greenswood, uh, also Sarah Polly and some other additional, uh, familiar faces from the Agoyan shared universe of uh, the sweet hereafter tells the story of a small Canadian mountain town um, that is devastated by a tragic event um, where 14 young children uh, lose their lives in a bus accident. And Ian Holmes character, uh, he plays the lawyer who comes and tries to convince these members of this community that the best way for them to heal is to sue is to be compensated is to assign blame to mm-hmm. someone for the loss of these young lives. And what a going does in this movie is um, nothing short of breathtaking. Every performance is pitch perfect. Uh, every character is believable, not only in their grief, but also in the choices they make. Um, and it's one of my, one of my favorite movies. Yeah, I think it's absolutely brilliant. I have not read the book. Um, I, I've heard that it is, you know, in spirit, there are some things that were changed from, um, you know, the book, of course, I guess Russell Banks is a big cinephile and it was Margaret Atwood actually, who recommended that he immediately watch Exotica and, uh, think about, you know, um, if this was the guy to tell this story, Goyan overall, we're going to talk about like one film that he didn't have a hand in writing, loves to write his own material. I think The Sweet Hereafter was also the first film that he adapted, which became mm-hmm. kind of a thing that he liked to do um, eventually, though he does still write some original screenplays as well. Um, yeah, it it's a remarkable film and it kind of it brings up a lot of questions of when something happens and how it does affect the community, even people who weren't on the bus that day or people who um, are related to people kind of when you think you're going Mm -hmm. through something like whether it's a health thing or a divorce or whatever, you're like, you know, in your own little narcissistic solipsistic world where you think it's just about you and you're not realizing it's also about all the people who love you. It's affecting them in different ways. And I think this is a movie that really does a good job of investigating that. Like the Sarah Pauly character, for example, is this young singer who we discover um, there's like a thing that goes throughout an allegory involving the Pied Piper of Hamlin. And um, she is having um, a relationship. She's being sexually abused by her father. Uh, it's super creepy. I mean, you know, they kind of, they, we don't see anything like too, too graphic, but it, it goes throughout the film uh, with the Pied Piper. And there's a fascinating thing um, later on where her parents Uh, including the mom we hadn't seen before, how they kind of want to latch on to this lawsuit um, for money reasons. And then the Bruce Greenwood characters like willing to give up his money that he got for the children who aren't there, you know, just to take care of her because she was the babysitter. Uh, She is um, wheelchair bound or wheelchair user um, after the accident, of course. And how she overhears things and then makes a decision, but also just whose tragedy is it and how does she get over it? And also what was happening before it makes her deal with uh, her life in a way that maybe she didn't have power over or thoughts about and how 
is it affecting everyone else in her life? And I think uh, it's really fascinating in that respect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Sarah Polly's character is, you know, she's the linchpin. She's yeah. the moral center of the movie. Um, I think to a lesser extent, Bruce Greenwood's character, again, given a great performance. Yes, he's uh, so good. You know, for anybody, yeah, he's really good. It's so, so weird. He didn't take off in America. I mean, he's mm-hmm. known in America as a great, great character actor and he's been on a lot of different TV shows and a lot of different movies, but um, I don't know. He doesn't seem to be given the same chances in American films as a Goyan Gillen because his performance in Azotica is stunning and he's just as good here again, dealing with grief, but in a different way. Yeah. Um, his character of, uh, of Bobby Ensel is somebody who I think, if not for Sarah Pauly's character would be the moral center of the, of the story where, yes. you know, this accident has happened and Ian Holmes character comes in and, you know, you can look at it two ways with Ian Holmes. You can look at it like, wow, he's really trying to help this community. This tragedy happened. But then when you find out a little bit about Ian Holmes character, that he has a daughter who's drug addicted, yes. possibly very, very sick as the movie mm-hmm. goes on. Um, is he using these people in this town to absolve his own guilt? Um, yes. I think that's an interesting question. Yeah. You know? Is it and, a money grab so, or what will right the mm-hmm. wrong? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he tells us during the course of the movie, he's on a plane or a train, I forget. And he tells this really harrowing story about his yes. daughter and how he was prepared to give her a tracheotomy. Yep. And after he, he, as he's telling the story, his seatmate is like, what happened? What happened? He's like, oh, she was fine. She was fine. But I knew I learned what I was prepared to do, how yep. far I was prepared to go. And you get the feeling that everything that happened to her since is he thinking maybe he should let her go because as an adult, she is a terrible drug addict and that's, yeah. she's still his daughter and he loves her. But I took from it that he really was using this town as a way to assuage his own guilt about what happened to his daughter. Um, the other thing that you brought up that I like to touch on real quick is there's a lot of medieval imagery in this movie. Yes. Um, uh, Sarah Polly's character plays music, but she's also very much into medieval history. Um, mm-hmm. There is a medieval tune that opens the movie. Um, there's the story of the Pied Piper. And it, yes. and I was wondering, for me, as, as a viewer, who's the Pied Piper in the movie? Is it Ian Holm? And are the citizens, the children, that he's you know taken away, basically? He's trying to lead them astray? Or is it Sarah Polly's father? Is it a more literal translation of the Pied Piper myth that He's this character that we look at at first and like, oh, wow, quote unquote, he's the cool dad. And then you discover or it's heavily implied that there is something, you know, untoward going on between him and Sarah Polly. Um, I shouldn't say between something is being done to Sarah Polly by her father. It's heavily weighted. And so, you know, it makes her decision at the end of the movie more understandable for me as a viewer. If what we take from those inferences as true, then yeah, her basically making a choice that stops the 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 uh, lawsuit in his tracks is not only brave of her and courageous, but also it, it allows her to exert some agency in her life, some control, you know, because yeah. her dad is one of the people pushing it for the money. And, you know, Bruce Greenwood has this great line um, and he's talking to a woman that I think 
we're supposed to take from the movie that him and this woman had an affair or mm-hmm. an on again, off again relationship. And oh, he yeah, tells her, she says, well, yeah. And she says to him, well, Mr. And Mr. Mitchell, uh, Ian Holmes character, he says that we could get money because the bus was bad. And Bruce Greens was like, I serviced that bus. There's nothing wrong with it. And then she says, well, the guardrail wasn't strong enough. That was, you know, what Ian Holmes character says. And she's saying all the regurgitating all these lines that Ian Holmes character is saying and Bruce Greenwood just says very simply to her, it was an accident. Yeah, it was an accident. Things just happen. And he just sometimes. says that mm-hmm. and things just happen. And you there's nobody to blame. And then we learn later he saw it happen. He's the witness yes. that saw what happened. And so um, you know, it, it is this idea of, you know, this idea, I think, of fate plays heavily in this movie. Yeah. Um, and 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 bad things happen to good people sometimes to good communities. And I thought his technique here of using dual timelines is so stunning in this movie mm-hmm. because we see almost all the parents before the accident and after. And you know they're not using makeup. They're not using anything. Just the the difference in their appearances is down to just incredible acting ability. Um, there's a character named Bear Otto a young indigenous boy and his parents are just broken. They're broken. There's yeah. 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 It's just, there's no coming back from that. Like mm-hmm. those, there's no amount of money that's going to fix that. You know, mm-hmm. there's no amount of financial compensation that's going to bring your son home or your daughter. Um, and, you know, even though this is, as the movie goes on, we learn that this is a civil case the driver in that bus accident was hurt and was injured incredibly, you know? Um, And so even though Sarah Polly's character does something in the end that sort of kind of shift blame on that bus driver, it, it went a long way. I think her decision goes a long way to healing that community. However, that community also is addicted to grief. Again, using grief as an addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, They're addicted to that pain. And some of them don't want to let go. And others like Bruce, uh, like Bruce Greenwood character who lost both his children. It's like his character makes the biggest argument for letting go. Mm-hmm. How are we supposed to move on unless we let go? And, you know, you made reference to him having a conversation with Sarah Polly's dad yeah. um, about that and how she overhears it. And it's him and her that have the courage to just move forward and be like, you know, here's the thing I think that Sweet Hair After does. And I think crime novels do this to a certain extent. Uh, horror novels use this as well, but sometimes there are no answers. And sometimes there's no one to blame. Yep. And sometimes you just have to pick up these broken pieces and try to put them back together the best way you can. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and that's hard. You know, it's hard to deal with that. Um, I wrote a whole book about grief and revenge and raise away tears and i gave my characters something to focus on because without that you know one of the characters says you know i I don't know how i'm supposed to keep getting up every day Mm -hmm. and he's not here you know and so in the sweet hereafter they don't have that i don't want to say luxury but they don't have that gift of rage of something they can focus on you know it's just getting up every day and living through it again and again and i think Ian Holmes' character, um, the way he's portrayed in the movie and the way he's written, I don't think he's a grifter. I think he really thinks he's doing what's best for these people. 
I think he thinks by doing this, it somehow helps him absolve himself of the guilt that he feels for the way his daughter turned out. But what I think he doesn't understand and what a lot of people in the town don't understand is what I just said. There's no amount of money that's going to fix this. Whatever they were going to get in that suit, it's not going to heal them. It's not going to definitely going to bring their children back. And it's just going to push the community apart further because again, as Bruce Greenwood character says, sometimes things just happen. Sometimes it's just an accident. Um, yeah. I think it's you just brought such up, a powerful film. Yeah. A lot of good points with the Ian Holm character. Like, you know, there are times at first when you see the, the relationship with the daughter, you think, is he being altruistic or is he a little bit more manipulative? There is a scene on the airplane when he's very rude and you find out like, oh, there's this other side of him. Like, before we were thinking, oh, this poor man who has this daughter and everything going through it. And then, well, maybe he kind of pushed her away or drove her to um, her behaviors, being self-destructive. Mm-hmm. You brought up the Pied Piper element and who is the Pied Piper. I think everybody has it. Um, you know, it could just be the bus. It could be freak accidents that happen. I like that it's a patch of ice that they just slid over, mm-hmm. essentially. And that's what caused it. Stuff you can't see coming. Um, which is that cruel thing. You can do everything right and still have something happen. Uh, I remember a law enforcement um, officer giving a speech and saying, you know, you can do everything right. You can have security alarms. You can carry around pepper spray. But if somebody wants to hurt you, you know, they they will probably do it. You know, like you can do everything right. It's not your fault. Like just, you know, that these things happen and talking about um, doing everything right or trying to assert power. One thing that the Sarah Polly character does uh, after the accident is uh, her father just enters the bedroom um, and she says, you know, that she wants a lock on that door, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like she is sort of putting up that wall of, OK, this is done now. Uh, what has been happening mm-hmm. between us uh, you brought up also the ambiguity of like what caused the accident or or what do we need answers sometimes where there are no answers you have to just be willing to um, live in the uncertainty because that is a big part of life and I think uh, Agoyan's films are great about that you know and they're like David Lynch in that respect you know they're not puzzles or we're not going to solve it mm-hmm. as a riddle uh, sometimes you know, it an accident is an accident, or sometimes, hey, it could have been a bolt, we don't know, on the bus, or it could have been the driver maybe was a little distracted or going too fast, or could have been, maybe it was windier that day, like, you don't know. And um, putting it all together, these things happen. Yeah. Yeah, I thought one thing that I made a note was these characters are so broken. Mm-hmm. But also some of them aren't, aren't unlikable, but that unlikability forces the viewer to reckon with sympathy and empathy. It yeah. forces you to reckon with the idea of, you know, are you only sympathetic to people you like, you know, mm-hmm. are you only sympathetic to people who um, exude qualities that you find appealing, you know, yeah. and does that negate their, their grief because you don't like it? I'm not talking about, Pop, the Sarah Polly's character's dad, who's an awful person. Yeah, but some yeah. of the other characters just genuinely are just, you know, hard to deal with, hard to talk to. Yeah. Um, you could say Bruce Green was character because he's messing around, you know. And, yeah. Um, and so it makes you look at these people in full, not just as brief snapshots, but 
the full width and breadth of who they are? And are you able to extend them that empathy? Which I think is difficult for some people. And I think it's hard. And I think, you know, one thing about Adam, about Agonian's films is they're not easy films to dissect. You know, he's got so much going on and there's so many ways to interpret what's going on that he doesn't offer. You made a point about Lynch. He's very similar in Lynch in tone that I'm not here to give you answers. I'm here to tell you a story. And those are two things. Like, I'll tell you just a funny anecdote. Uh, When I do book signings and people that have read Blacktop Wasteland, they always ask me, are Bug and Kia together at the end of the book? Mm. Kia is is Bug's wife and Bug is main character in the book. And they always ask me at signings, are they back together? Are they together? I used to have a very flippant answer to that. I used to be like, I don't know. I like, I stopped writing. So I don't know what happens after that. There was a lady at a book signing who did not like that answer. She was not happy about that. Mm -hmm. She wanted me to definitively tell her what happened. And I just, you know, after we kind of laughed it off because she was a little upset. I said, here's the thing, though. Art and media and stories are given to you to interpret. I wrote. So I know how I think it is. And I wrote the ending that I think works that that moment in time. But what happens after page 301, that's on you, you know, and that's up to you. And yep. I think artists like Lynch and Agoyan, and I think John Sayles can maybe be in this group. Um, they're not interested in giving you a pat, you know, conservative yeah. answer. They're interested in telling you a story. And where mm-hmm. that story stops depends on where their imagination stops. You know, if you watch Mulholland Drive, you know, it is a fascinating incredibly diaphanous movie experience but at the same time it can be a little confusing that story mm-hmm. stops where david lynch figured okay this is enough i don't have to tell you anymore and i think agoyan does that as well like i said john sales i mean there's other filmmakers that do that but those are the three that kind of jump out of my and at the head of my mind um where they're not giving you cookie cutter endings that are wrapped up in a bow i like that as a viewer as a film goer. yeah i i appreciate that I, I think modern filmmakers, and this is not a knock on superhero movies. I love, if you know me, you know I'm a superhero geek. But I do <laughs> think that there's a certain style of filmmaking that has conditioned people to expect answers in the third act, expect final destination type action in the third act. Everybody, every character gets their either their reward or their comeuppance, and then we move on to the next chapter. And there are films that don't do that. Um, I I'd recently um, <laughs> was supposed to, I missed an opportunity to discuss this with our friend Blake, uh, but uh, talk, thinking about No Country for Old Men. Um, the Coens don't do it a lot, but No Country for Old Men is a movie that doesn't give you a lot of answers. In fact, this, the, the main conceit of the movie is sort of just a side project. The main story is Tommy Lee Jones' character. And that t- yes. I think I think when you're 25, and you see No Country for Old Men, you're interested in Anton Chigurh. But when you're 40, <laughs> um, you're way more interested in Tommy, Tommy Lee Jones. So, Yeah, I agree with you. And I think what's important about all the filmmakers that you were mentioning, or just this idea, is they're not doing it just to be trendy or cool. Sometimes you have um, 
filmmakers now, shall we say the, I hate the phrase, but the quote unquote elevated horror or the prestige horror, Mm -hmm. some of those movies that are just about dread essentially, where it seems like it's done in a lazy way or a way that isn't respectful of the audience. Whereas a Goyan loves his characters and his people, just like sales and the other people you mentioned, they are humanistic filmmakers. They're fascinated by mm-hmm. what makes us tick and our psychology and they respect the audience. They don't want to spoon feed us. They, they believe that we are smart people and we will figure it out mm-hmm. or come to our own conclusions. And so they're not being trendy when they do it. And I think that is the distinction and why it works so well. Uh, in their films, mm-hmm. in a movie like Limbo by John Sales, which was made two years after uh, Sweet Hereafter and released in 99. But yeah, great films so far. Is there anything else you wanted to say on Sweet Hereafter before we move on? Oh, just one last thing. I think the last shot of the Sweet Hereafter is beautiful. Uh, I think, again, it, it focuses us on Sarah Polly's character, but also it gives us a sense of hope for the future. Yeah. Now she was able to do what nobody else could do. Um, and I think it's interesting for philosophical conceit. I, there are people that you will talk to that will tell you that's the wrong way to look at grief, that you should never try to get past it. You should never try to move on. I'm not someone that feels comfortable making those determinations for anybody else. Yes. But as far as them. just in the context of this movie, yeah, in this, in this world that is created in the movie, I think Sarah Polly's character did the she did the um she played the uh the golem role and not to say that she's hideous no she did what the other characters weren't strong enough to do what they wanted to do what they needed to do she did it she threw the ring into the into the into into the uh volcano um because as long as that money was hanging over their heads in that movie they were never gonna heal they were never gonna move forward they weren't even gonna try and it, it took someone a child and as she's presented in the movie to say, no, we've got to let this go. It was just an accident. And, you know, if the person who survived, who's in a wheelchair wants to move on, then who are any, who are anybody else in that movie to, to tell her they shouldn't. So that's the last thing I'll say about that. Yes. Once again, she's the truth teller, just like she is in Exotica. Mm-hmm. Sarah Polly. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, lastly, today we have the 2009 unusual erotic thriller, even though Agoyan objects to that phrase uh, thriller because he said the thriller element comes in at the end. So we'll just say erotic drama. Chloe, it's mm-hmm. a remake of 2003's French film Natalie from writer director Anne Fontaine that I remember also liking but haven't seen in ages. And actually, Anne Fontaine talked about um, the actresses in the movie being uncomfortable with the direction she wanted to go in so she was excited for this remake chloe was written for the screen for star julianne moore in mind she's one of my favorite actresses so i was really excited it was written by secretary scripter aaron cressida wilson and became the first film not written at least in part by a goyan centered on Moore's gynecologist, who is concerned that her charming, handsome, openly flirtatious husband, a college professor played by Liam Neeson, is cheating on her. In the movie, she hires and bonds with a young, high-class escort played by Amanda Seyfried, who presents herself to Neeson as a chance encounter in a coffee shop and then reports back to Moore. 
that old question of be careful what you wish for or what you engineer and put into motion. Soon Seyfried and Moore develop an erotic obsession that hinges on the retelling of encounters with her husband. And it grows more complex and torrid from there. What is real? What is fantasy? What is storytelling? I really liked this film when it was released in 2010. In fact, I even reviewed it as one of a handful of 21st century Egoyan movies that I saw covered and raved about, but now had really very little memory of. So I was very glad you chose it and gave me the chance to revisit. So what's your take on Chloe? I think Chloe is fascinating in that it is like, if you went to Exotica hoping for titillation and was disappointed, what you get with Chloe is these, this, Again, I'm going to refer back to Lynch. Is this Lynchian eroticism? Because mm-hmm. in Lynch films, eroticism always comes with a price. It it mm-hmm. it is a disturbing. It is what we maybe consider kinky. What we maybe consider on the edges of sexuality, um, sort of eroticism. It's never just. It's never you know. It's it's never um, uh, you know uh, a fatal attraction where. There's moments where there's intense sexual uh, uh, scenes and sexual situations. Mm -hmm. Then you have to pay for it later on down the road because (laughs) it's an erotic thriller. Um, So, you know, you know, nobody ever gets out of these things having fun. You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's fun at first and you have to pay the piper, so to speak. Um, What Chloe does, which is different than what any of those Adrian Lynn erotic thrillers from the 90s did. You know, and side note, I love Adrian Lynn as a director. Those 90s, whether it's Fatal Attraction or the other ones that he did, like I think he did Sliver and stuff like that, they had this incredible cinematography where it looks like somebody's standing just off set and they're blowing steam into the into the set. I love that. It like yeah. it, it all looks like he's filming like it does. Adrian Lyne had been like a commercial filmmaker and um, he'd been like, I think he'd done some music videos besides commercials. So he had this like artistic sensibility and even something like Indecent Proposal, which we shouldn't yeah, really like, yeah. is a great piece of entertainment. It looks gorgeous. Uh, nine and a half weeks, not such a good picture, but it's basically like a music video <laughs> after another, after yeah. another. And that's Adrian Lyne. Yeah. The difference between him, between Adrian Lyon, thank you for the correction, between Adrian Lyon and Adam McGoin is, even in this, which I think is his most overtly sexualized film, he doesn't allow you to really enjoy it. Like, it is this sort of very disturbing, sort of quietly disturbing, it's not a horror movie, I don't want to give that false impression, but it's a very quietly disturbing piece of cinema where I think we've all met someone where we thought they were really cool at first. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, oh, this person's fucking nuts. This person is insane. <laughs> yes. And how slowly that dawns on you. And so he he takes all the elements of a sexual thriller, the beautiful lead character, Julianne Moore, the beautiful uh, supporting character, and Amanda Seyfried, the very masculine, manly character with Liam Neeson. He takes all the ingredients, but instead of making it erotic and titillating i watched it like almost on the edge of my seat like this is not gonna end well this i just it it just imbues itself with this idea that the other shoe is gonna drop any minute so you can't enjoy the sexuality the the eroticism because there's something off about chloe 
there's something off about Julianne Moore's character that she feels the need to do this. It's this off-kilter, skewered perception of suburban domest- uh, domest- uh, domesticness. Uh, 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 it's this, this skewered view of adult sexual relationships and intimacy. And yeah. because it's an Adam McGowan film, it's so heavy on it. it. It hammers you over the head with, this is how people you know react to each other. This is how people you know act with each other. Of course, then he turns it up to 11 with the Chloe character, and it does at the end become a sort of traditional erotic thriller. But before those last 10, 15 minutes, it is a very interesting. It's not my favorite to go in film. Uh, I think Julianne Moore is remarkable in it. I think Amanda Seafried does a lot with what I think is sort of an unenviable p- position. You know, she's playing the yeah. the manic pixie girl but also the sexual ingenue and it's sort of hard to balance both those because ultimately we do find out she is unhinged we find out that she has issues um also i think it's unfortunate that this movie makes her attraction to julianne more sort of it's a the movie feels like it views it as a moral failing as opposed to just this situation that overcame someone. If you ask anybody who's ever been obsessed with somebody, whether or not they set out to become obsessed, of course, they're going to tell you no. And I I don't think the Chloe character set out to become obsessed with Julianne Moore's family. Um, She's not a horror movie villain, Um, but the movie toward the end doesn't do her any favors in that respect. It does sort of reduce her to a traditional horror movie protagonist. And I thought, um, um, Seafree does a lot more than that, especially in the, the scenes when she's first talking to Julianne Moore. It's about, you know, the, once again, with Agoyan, you're dealing with voyeurism and storytelling, mm-hmm. watching versus talking and, you know, how, um, what turns you on. And also there's a good question throughout the film about trust and uh, the people that you've been in a relationship with for a long time, you know, you're not the same person mm-hmm. you might have been in your 20s. Agoyan pointed that out in an mm-hmm. interview. Of course, you're not. You're a different person year to year as you experience life. And so you might have been perfect for someone or had all this stuff in common in your 20s. And then you guys have become totally different people by your 40s. Or um, he brings up a good point of, you know, why is she so distrustful is, I think, um, what somebody asks him about the Julianne Moore character. And he said something like, probably because she started to look around or she has these thoughts in her own mind about life or people or, um, you know, her own body changing or her own questions about her appearance. And so she's wondering how they're manifesting because he has to be going through something like that in his own mind. And they're just not openly Mm -hmm. talking about it. Like, yeah, I do feel less desirable or whatever it is. Or yes, um, people do come on to me, but I'm not interested. Or, um, you know, have you been like, they're just not having any of these conversations. So I think what sort of develops between her and the Amanda Seyfried character is this open communication and how erotic that is because they are just telling each other things which you kind of do at the beginning of a relationship and then I guess as time goes you fall into your comfortable patterns you're like comfortable old shoes or roommates 
And so um, that's not what's happening. And I agree with you. I think they do kind of turn her just like they did with Glenn Close, Fatal Attraction. If we're talking again about Adrian Lyne, they sort of make her into almost a horror movie character by the end of the movie. But I think um, what Amanda brings to it, the pathos also of um, Agoyan, because, you know, you feel like Julianne Moore has used her as a puppet a little bit. And so uh, mm-hmm. for a good part of the movie, you you do have a lot of sympathy for her. Like, you know, is she just falling for this person and uh, caught up in it? And she is trying to uh, seduce them the way that she is getting turned on thinking about the third party, Liam Neeson. And so mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, I think also there's a question of classism in the movie where yes. both uh, Julian and Liam Neeson's character are rich. Mm-hmm. And of course, Chloe, we, she doesn't come off. We don't think that she's totally, totally broke, but she's definitely at the other end of the financial spectrum from them. Yeah. And is it this situation where I, I think it's interesting what a going does is that, there's a twist in the movie. I'm not going to give away because it's more recent than either the ones other ones we talked about. But the once you see the twist, it makes you look at Chloe differently. But then what happens after the twist, what Julianne Moore character does, it makes you look at her a little with a side eye because Coldly. you know yeah. it, it's this yeah it's this idea that she's this rich doctor who for her this this interlude let's call it between having Chloe try to flirt with her husband, try to test him, basically, and then mm-hmm. the aftermath of that, for her, that's an anecdote she'll tell a girlfriend over a glass of wine. Yeah. You know? It's like, that's an adventure for her, and that's something I think rich people do all the time, is they like to come around poor people and have adventures, and they don't <laughs> care about how those adventures affect, affect the poor the people, people or the community around them. You just want to come in and have fun, you know, and it's it's the same thing you see when you have rich people go to the Bahamas or Aruba. The people that are there are just there to facilitate their enjoyment. You don't think about what your actions are doing to those people down the road. And Julianne Moore's character, yeah, Chloe's character is dishonest with her to a certain extent, but Julianne Moore's character uses her. She uses that, you know, she basically uses her for a sexual adventure in a way that she doesn't have the courage to do on her own. You know, um, and so ultimately what I took from the movie is it, it definitely is a conversation to be had about adults and intimacy and how we convey intimacy once the, you know, the patina of first flush, you know, uh, arousal has worn off. And what does intimacy look like at 35 and 45 and 55? Um, what is it like when you've been with somebody 5, 10, 15 years? And I think Julianne Moore's character is less of a victim by the end of the movie than you would think in the, the middle. Because um, for me, by the end yes. of it, I wasn't team Chloe, but I damn sure wasn't team Julianne no, Moore. I, no. I felt like, yeah, I felt like, and I thought the last shot of, and, and again, this I love Agoyne's work, but this what I sort of is, I'm not as as warm or, or as, as uh, taken with Chloe as in his other movies. The last shot of, of this movie sort of insinuates that the family unit is back together. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. But Julianne Moore's character has uh, is wearing a pin. Or, yeah, a hair uh, clip. Some type of yeah. jewelry. Yeah, or that Chloe's character pin? had. Yeah. I, I, I might be wrong, so forgive me for that. I just, uh, but for me, that was disturbing. 
I, I thought that was really yes. disturbing because, again, I don't want to give away too much of what happens. But for me as a viewer, I felt like, well, that proves that for Julianne Moore, this was just a, a an adventure, a play thing. You know, this was just playtime. And for this yeah. other person, this was their life. You know, and I thought, again, I think Agoyan is a brave uh, filmmaker to end the movie like that. There's a lot of people that would want a very firm moral decision one way or the other. And he sort of just leaves it up like, oh, yeah, there's something that happened to this family and they've all moved on and they've forgotten about this this character. And yeah, she's got the pin or the hair clip or whatever. And, and one, you could be charitable and say that, oh, she's never going to forget about Chloe. That, you know, she really no, changed the way she all. views the world. Or, you know, you could be less charitable and like the world bit to her desire. The world That's bent to the way yeah. she wanted to experience. And so I thought that was fascinating. That's a fascinating choice to make with your main character. Unlikable characters, unlikable situations are hard. As a writer, I can tell you this, they're hard to get the money people to agree to go along with. You know, it's like everybody who has the money in a creative endeavor wants a very pat, fixed ending. And I think it's much more fascinating to have an ending that is ambiguous or the same, maybe even openly hostile. And I think he does that with Chloe. So there's this, this moment toward the end where it becomes like a horror movie. But then there's this moment where it reverts back to a intense psychological character study. And I, I thought it was fascinating. It reminded me of, and this is a stretch, so bear with me. But that last scene in Chloe reminded me of the last scene in House of Games. No oh, way. Man. I just oh, wrote that down while you were talking. <laughs> I did. Yes. I wrote Lindsay Krauss House of Games ending. Yeah. Because yeah. at the end, you see this shrink who has killed somebody, uh, the Joe Montana character. And by the end, like she's stealing something or kind of getting off on uh what happened mm -hmm. and uh yeah, yeah, yeah it's exactly like you know these rich people um it's disposable it's transactional it's also mm -hmm. you brought up class i'd bring up something else which is age you know this young person mm -hmm. can be just thrown away or it's not going to affect her well she's just young um i was telling in the group chat and i thought i would tell the story on the podcast finally but mm -hmm. when i was in my early 20s on my college campus i went to the quad and there was this woman and i noticed her a couple days in a row sort of observing me and other young women mm -hmm. and she walked up one day and was like just started talking about, I don't know, the weather or something random mm -hmm. and pretending we were just having a regular conversation. And then she asked me like what I did for a living. And she said, you know, you're so well-spoken and attractive and, um, you know, you should think about being an escort. And I was like, what? <laughs> I think I was just in such shock. I'm like, I, at first I laughed thinking she was kidding. And she's like, no, I work for this. And she worked for like a Scottsdale upper class escort agency. And she's like, no, all you do, which is their big line, you know, oh no, it's, I know what you're thinking and it's not prostitution. You know, men come into town and they're on business trips and they just want a beautiful <laughs> woman to have dinner and talk with. And you're so, you know, and then she flatters you again. And uh, yeah. you, know, you, you would do very well, you know, you um, you have excellent posture and, you know, you just, she just kept, you know, kissing my, my ass essentially. And uh, finally I, I just, I said no. And then no, like she kept trying to talk. And finally I just got up and I walked away. Like you have the wrong, yeah. <laughs> you have the wrong. But yeah, that's girl, a perfect, 
but it kind of reminded me. That's a perfect me. example. Yeah, yeah and a little bit of erotica watching these back to back. It was like, oh wow, yeah, erotic Scottsdale adventures. That's a- yeah. Our good friend Jordan Harper was joking that you know, like, because Blake said, "Where is this TV show?" And so it became like a thing they were throwing around Scottsdale escorts, and uh, <laughs> and they were gonna you know sell my life rights and make up a character uh. based on me. It was Gwen Gohans who you know. Jen Johan said no, but Gwen Gohan said yes. <laughs> so we a, a bit in our group chat yesterday. Yes. Oh God. I do. That's so funny. <laughs> I do think the movie does make an important point about power imbalances in, yes. in age, really, in relationships uh-huh. based on age. And so how Chloe's character is this sort of young. You know, of course, you're talking about, so she's a grown woman. She knows what she's doing. Yeah, but you're not as grown at 24 as you are as, at 36. Yes. You're not you as grown at 24 are. as yes. you are at 42. Nope. Yeah. I I know, for me personally, the 24-year-old that I was, <laughs> I am so glad the books and stuff that didn't happen to that guy. Because I would be on <laughs> TMZ every week. Um, just because I had no yeah, self control. Yeah, our friend back Sean then. was quite the player. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you had some fun. <laughs> uh, a, a player, a per, a purveyor of uh, of erotic adventures, whatever. Yeah, but um, a ladies' man. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say when Sean gets going on our group hangs, like we hear some things, man. And it's awesome, but it's like we're glad he's married and everything is good now. <laughs> yes. But having said all that, I do think there is a definite uh, shift in maturity and the shift in the way you engage with people as you get older. I think, you know, we all have that friend who likes bad boys, quote, bad girls in their 20s. And you hope by the time they're 30, they've grown out of that. That's a stage Mm -hmm. that you move out of, you know, and hopefully if you're an adult, you have. And I think, you know, I think Amanda Seyfried does a great job of exuding that with Chloe. Yeah, yep. she's a call girl. Yeah, she's made choices to work in sex work, which is work. Um, but of course, the way society views that is different. And I think Julianne Moore does a great job of showing that no matter how she presents her relationship with Chloe, ultimately she looks down upon her. Ultimately, Chloe's not someone that she considers a friend, even though again yeah, spoiler, like after they sleep they, together during the course yes of the movie. that whole sequence oh my gosh afterwards it feels so yeah. wrong and creepy oh yeah. it feels gross yes it's so gross and the way she just dismisses her yep. it's just again it is the it is the it is like, the uh, privilege of want. the upper class yeah in the mm-hmm. cab yeah. yeah to do that and you you feel for chloe's character it's like no i won't you can't just toss me aside. Now, is like she in love with Julianne Moore's character? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she's probably not in love with her, but at the same time, I think Chloe's character has Chloe an argument is. for, yeah. you know, you use me. Yeah, yeah, you use me to test your husband, and then you use me to get off on that, and now you don't want to be bothered with me anymore. And I think that's an interesting question. I do think it's fascinating. I was going to ask you, do you think... It's funny because I read that this is is, is a going's most financially successful yeah. film, but it's definitely not his thematically most successful. And I wonder if that's I agree with it's you. It's funny. I wonder if this is the reason. Is it 
Is it his most financially successful one? Because he has distance from it because he didn't write it. But is it also his least successful thematic one because of that same reason? And I was wondering what you I think it is. Yeah, I think, you know, he took a different approach. It does have some dual storylines or some fan- fantasy storytelling that, that takes place and some things. Um, but not like his normal plan of attack when it comes to nonlinear storytelling. It's also more classically framed. Like he said, um, whenever he thought of some cool shot he thought about doing, he immediately did not. He said he wanted to do it as simply and as straightforward as possible just to serve the story, but don't make it like, you know, an over the top erotic thriller, you know, don't sign post. And he said sometimes uh, in his other films, he would have to be more fluid with his camera movements. Like we move throughout the club in Exotica and it's, you know, it is very seductive and here you just have kind of static camera shots a little bit. I mean, it's a gorgeous looking film. I don't think a man, I mean, Amanda Seyfried is like a beautiful creature, but I don't think she's ever looked better than she looks in this movie. I mean, she is stunning. Like Aaron Cressida Wilson mm-hmm. said something like a face kissed by angels or straight out of heaven, essentially, because she's just the most beautiful creature. And you could see how people would just immediately fall under her spell but also she has these big doe eyes, this sort of innocent vulnerability that you can see people playing with her. I think it's also maybe he a little bit of distance. Um, I don't think it's as deep as his other pictures. And while he said it was really kind of fun to just serve the story and not have to, he said, be like writing the movie in his mind as he was shooting it, which he does sometimes, uh, like, how is this scene going to plug in later? And he said he was out of his head that way. But knowing how his mind works and how he likes to do that kind of thing, I think the fact that it was missing might have had something to do with that. But I also think one of the reasons this was so successful is it came right after Mamma Mia and Taken. So mm-hmm. it was like Amanda all of a sudden was a household name. They saw her in it, her audition. They said she didn't really come dolled up. Her hair was a little greasy, no makeup, but she was just incredible and blew him away. But this was before Mamma Mia and they knew they couldn't build a mm-hmm. film around her. Agoyan had directed Liam Neeson in a play and um, then Taken happened and he became like a huge box office sensation. Julianne Moore was a draw, like she was going to help get a bit of a budget. Mm-hmm. But putting all three of those together, I think, became the, ooh, this is after Taken mm-hmm. and Mamma Mia. Sadly, this was uh, shot during the time that Liam Neeson lost his wife. So um, yeah. that happened yeah. uh, during the event or of, of shooting. And so he had to go away. They kind of like, I think my, maybe restructured the movie a little bit. And then he came and shot his final two days worth um, like later on. So I don't know if that might have affected the storytelling a little. Not, I'm not sure. But yeah, I think that's part of it. And audiences like something more straightforward. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. It's it's a more straightforward thriller. Sort it of seems like it. Yeah. Thriller. Yeah. Um, I thought the uh, thing I didn't mention, but I mentioned in my notes earlier, I wrote down, uh, I, I, and I don't know who, who the cinematographer is for each movie, but Agoyan does have a certain visual style. Yeah. His movies are always beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, uh, to go back to the sweeter after one little note on cinematography, everything in the past 
is pristine and white. It takes place on the day of the accident. There's snow everywhere. It's cold, but not not brittle. It's cold, yeah. but not uh, inhuman. It's a cold that has the warmth of these families putting the kids on the bus. And then everything after the accident is brown and dark. And it's just mm-hmm. a dirty cinematography. It takes, it feels like it's the seventies. It feels like there's a lot of like browns yeah. and tans and stuff. Um, you don't feel that in Chloe. Chloe, like you said, Amanda Seyfried is luminous, but yes. Julianne Moore looks incredible. Like, oh, she always does. Beautiful. Yes. Like, it, yeah, I, I don't know if I, I think the only time I've seen her hair look better, and I mean better as far as in color and tone and, and depth of vision, is uh, she uh, was in this horrible movie, speaking of erotic thrillers, <laughs> she was in a horrible movie called Body of Evidence with Madonna and Willem Dafoe. And uh, yes. Julianne Moore plays Willem Dafoe's wife in that movie. And whoever was shooting that movie, they went to the Adrian Lyon School of soft focus cameras, but her mm-hmm. hair, there's a scene early on in that movie where her and Willem Dafoe are, are, are having sex. And I don't know what they did, but the way her hair just whips <laughs> around, it's very almost siren-like. And in this movie, and Chloe, the way it's shot, it looks mm-hmm. like, you know, it basically looks like there's a waterfall of fire going down her back. It's amazing the way this movie is shot. Um, the lighting choices that were made in this movie are stunning. Um, like I said, it feels and has that Adrian Lyon look, but the depth of characterization until the last 10 minutes is definitely marks it as an Adam in film. It's definitely his style. It's like, yeah. it's almost like he's making his signature meal in somebody else's kitchen. So. Yeah, and it, I think it would make a fascinating double feature or triple feature along with her other scripts, uh, Aaron Cresta Wilson's Secretary, which I love. That's a better yes. film than this, but uh, but yeah. 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 Well, I know that's all the ones we had time for today, uh, especially as you've been so busy with those final edits and everything else you're working on. But before I let you go, are there any other Goyan movies or just films by other people that remind you of or are on the same wavelength that we haven't mentioned that you would like to recommend? Um, yeah, just uh, if you like uh, Adam Goyan's film, if you like sort of this dark interpretation of humanity and sexuality, um, of course, Jane Campion's The Piano yeah. um, comes to mind, an incredible movie. Um, I think... Uh, Steve, uh, uh, David Cronenberg's Crash with yep. Elias Coteus being another weirdo. Uh, yes. with James Spader. J- James, I am not acting. This is how I really am, Spader. Um, <laughs> oh my so, God, I love James Spader. And I love Coteus. Um, yes. Yes, I think Crash is an interesting movie uh, in that same sort of vein. It's more sexualized than either of uh, Ligonian's films, but it also talks about a strange family unit sort of a group of yeah. people that you come become close to um and i think alienation in, in same again. Vein, last thing i'll say yeah the last thing i'll say is uh paul thomas anderson's two of his movies uh magnolia feels like a movie in a different universe adam mcgoyan would have made um yep. and it, it plays the paul thomas anderson strengths but i would I'd, I'd be curious to see what it would have looked like if a Goyan had made it because it is such a movie about grief and about loss, platonic and romantic love and how we force ourselves to accept things. Maybe we shouldn't. And I think, I would, I don't know. I'd love to hear his thoughts on it because it's such a fascinating film and Magnolia is another film that I watch on repeat a bunch of different times. So those are uh, a couple of, uh, 
of uh, recommendations. If you liked uh, what we were talking about today, uh, definitely check those films out. For sure. And it's perfect again, because actually, as soon as I was done with a Goyan, I have to start in on the world of Paul Thomas Anderson for this thing I'm taking part in uh, closer to the weekend, um, doing a, a podcast where I'm going to talk about Hard Eight. And so today I was going to rewatch uh, Boogie Nights, actually, and it kind of just feeds right into this whole universe of, mm-hmm. yeah, of uh, alienation and, you know, how we interact and voyeurism and very in kind of thing um but sean i want to thank you so much for doing this it's always such a pleasure to talk about movies and i think this was really great to take a look at this wonderful filmmaker and talk about what we love in storytelling so thank you no thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure and like i said i i definitely am honored that you allow me to come over here and and ramble about uh an art form that is so near and dear to your heart. So thank you for having me. Thank you. You'll have to come back in season four. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.